Well, good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Daniel, and uh, I'm excited to be sharing with you this morning as we carry on in Nehemiah. Um, by way of introduction, uh, my family and I, we started coming to CCF back in 2010, and we're balcony dwellers. <laughs> All right. Um, I kind of felt a little bit awkward introducing myself, but James said to me, you probably need to introduce yourself. It's been a long time. I thought, it hasn't been that long since I preached. And I went back and I looked, and the last time I preached in person was October of 2018. So it has been a long time since I preached. And interestingly, when I look back, October 2018, the last time I preached, it was Chili Cook-Off Sunday. So... The only logical conclusion I can draw from that is Sundays when I preach, you've got to bribe people with chili to get them to come to church. <laughs> but anyway, before we uh, get into our passage this morning, um, would you join me in a quick word of prayer? Uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the chance to come again this morning and open the Bible and look at your word and see what it has for us to learn. Lord, we pray that we would... Uh, have open hearts, open minds to hear what you have to say this morning, and Lord, may you be glorified in our time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever noticed in life there are certain things that sort of seem to be inevitable? Um, when we go and visit family, we have to take a, a long plane flight, and our flight is long enough that you get served a meal on the plane. You actually get served two meals on the plane. And um, they come out, you know, the little trays come down the aisle, they give you your food and you get your, your little drink, always get ginger ale, keep your stomach good on the long flight, right? And it's one thing that you can almost guarantee, it's inevitability, as soon as you get your tray of food, as soon as you get your thing of drink, turbulence. And you're sitting trying to hold everything and it just happens every time. Um, another example is I like to go hunting, and I can almost guarantee that if I get a little bit hungry and I stop and get my bag open and go looking for a sandwich, it's inevitable that's the moment the ducks come in and that's the moment the ducks go out, right? <laughs> Every time. Uh, if you're on a long road trip and your wife says, oh, I'll keep you company, it's inevitable when two minutes later you turn around, the head's back and the eyes are closed, and the conversation's gone, right? <laughs> If you, if, you're, uh, if you ask your husband a hundred times to do a job around the house and he says, yeah, I'll do it later today, it's inevitable you're going to have to ask 101 times, right? <laughs> These things just always seem to happen. And on a more serious note, um, when the people of God come together in unity to carry out a task that God has laid out for them to do, it's inevitable that they're going to face opposition of some kind. Right? Something is going to come up that gets in their way. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's inevitable at some point, or more likely multiple points in your life, you're going to face some kind of opposition. And the question we're going to address this morning is how should we respond to that opposition, and how do we make it through those times when we are being opposed? We're going to see in our passage this morning that Nehemiah faces some pretty serious opposition, and we're going to look at how he dealt with it to help us along. And our passage this morning we're going to read is in Nehemiah chapter 4, so if you want to go ahead and find that in your Bible or your app, we'll read that in a moment. But before we do that, let's do a quick recap of what we've had so far in the story of Nehemiah. So I'm going to use the same pictures that uh, Brian used last week, but I added one of my own, a new one in the top corner. Right, so this is the story of Nehemiah so far. 
So um, the people of Judah were conquered by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, essentially, and carried the people away into exile. And before we get to Nehemiah, there's actually been another leader, Ezra, who has brought some of the people back to Jerusalem, and he's rebuilt the temple. So that's happened first. But there are still some people who have remained behind in exile, and Nehemiah is one of those people who has stayed behind. And what happens is Nehemiah's brother comes and tells him, that's up in the top left corner, comes and tells him that the city of Jerusalem is still kind of in ruins and the walls are all broken down. And you can see Nehemiah is crying there. That upsets him, and we're going to come back to that later in our sermon today. Nehemiah had a very important position where he was. He was a government official, and he served as the cupbearer to the king. So you can see down in the bottom left there, he is... Uh, taking the cup to the king, and he asks the king for permission to go back and rebuild the walls, and the king grants him that permission. So he leaves, he does that. Up in the top right, we've got, he comes and he explores the city at night, has a look around at the condition of the walls, and then what we heard about last week down in the bottom right-hand corner was the walls begin to be built. And Nehemiah arranged people by families and by clans to build the sections of the wall in front of where they lived. So that's what we've had so far. And what we're going to read now is what happens next. So Nehemiah chapter 4, it's a longish passage, but I'm going to go ahead and read the whole passage. So follow along um, with me here. Now when Samballot, when we actually met Samballot, just to interject, we actually met Samballot earlier back in chapter 2. He's a, he's a government official. We're going to talk more about him in a minute. When Samballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. This is Nehemiah talking again now. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Samballot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest part of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, 
and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each laboured on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we laboured at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labour by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. Okay, so as I said, we're going to work our way through this and we're going to look at the ways that Nehemiah responded when he was faced with opposition. And so the first thing that Nehemiah did when faced with opposition was he left judgment to God. The early verses in this chapter begin with Sambalat and Tobiah mocking or ridiculing Nehemiah and those building the wall. And Nehemiah responds essentially by not responding. To attempt a modern equivalence, if uh, Nehemiah today was to be mocked on X, formerly known as Twitter, we probably would wait to see what he was going to tweet back. And with any luck, we'd get a full-on flame war, right? Back and forth. However, Nehemiah doesn't do anything like that at all. Rather than responding to his opponents in kind, Nehemiah prays to God in a way that perhaps makes us a little bit uncomfortable. In verses 4 and 5, Nehemiah prays what's called an imprecatory prayer. An imprecatory is just a fancy word for basically he calls down curses on them. Nehemiah asks or prays to God that their taunt would be turned back on their own heads, that they'd be plundered as captives, that their sins wouldn't be blotted from God's sight. And the first thing we maybe think is that this prayer seems a little bit disproportionate to the amount of mocking that he received. But To try and give you an idea of what's going on here, I couldn't find a good map online. It kind of annoyed me. But picture with me, if you will, right? We've got Nehemiah in Jerusalem, and we've got Sambalat who's opposing him. And Sambalat was the governor of Samaria, which is the region to the north of Jerusalem. And then we hear about Tobiah, Tobiah the Ammonite, and the Ammonite region is to the east of Jerusalem. And then later on down in verse 7, we read about the Arabs and the Ashdodites, They are to the south and to the southwest of Jerusalem. So if you sort of have been following around, well, on the west is the ocean, right? There's not a whole lot out there. We've got north, east, south, southwest. Nehemiah is literally surrounded by these opponents, right? The the very existence of Jerusalem is, is kind of at threat here, right? So he prays this, like, serious prayer, but... Even with the level of opposition he's facing, it still seems kind of extreme. Um, especially to us who, you know, we're, we're Christians, we're New Testament Christians. We have Jesus' teachings, and Jesus says, love your enemies, um, 
Pray for those who persecute us. And so we also have another, I've got another passage here from 2 Timothy. If you've got that one, is he? So this is Paul writing to Timothy. He says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And this seems a little bit more comfortable, right? Kind of like that a little bit better. So what do we do with Nehemiah's prayer? Is this just kind of an Old Testament relic kind of thing that's been superseded by the New Testament? Do we have some kind of inconsistency here in the Bible? Well, I don't think it is possible for us to just explain this away as an Old Testament kind of idea. Because if we carry on reading in 2 Timothy, we have this verse. This is the same letter Paul's writing to Timothy. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Or if we go to the message, it gives it a little bit more punch. Watch out for Alexander the coppersmith. Fiercely opposed to our message, he caused no end of trouble. God will give him what he's got coming. Right? This is the same letter. We've just said, pray for them. Go, you know, your opponents might turn back and forgiveness. And then, no, nah, he's going to get what's coming. Right? So, how do we kind of reconcile these two seemingly contradictory ways of being wronged? And we could spend a lot of time talking about implications, but we won't do that because it's not the main focus of the passage. But I think we can learn something by looking at this a little bit. Right? To return back to my original point. Nehemiah responds here by leaving judgment to God. He prayed and he explicitly talked to God about the sin and the guilt of his opponents. And implicit in this is Nehemiah's desire or approval for God's judgment. Nehemiah knows that he doesn't have to execute any kind of judgment because God can and God will do it far better than he can. I think we all have this sort of innate desire, almost innate desire to see justice done, right? If you watch a movie or you read a book that has a villain in it, you kind of hope that the villain is going to get what they had coming, right, to use Paul's term. Just yesterday, I read an article by David Mathis, and he talked about going to watch uh, Lion King on Broadway. And he noted that in the play's climactic moment, the crowd went wild at the destruction of Scar. Scar's the villain in The Lion King. He said, among all the educated and psychologically informed members of the audience, I didn't observe any who expressed concern about the villain's feelings. None demanded our empathy for the misunderstood scapegoat. Deep down, we all want the wicked to receive their due. When we are wronged, it's okay to bring our grievances to God. Now, we have to be careful that the fault doesn't actually lie with us, and we have to be careful that we don't complain about God, but we certainly can complain to God. In their books on prayer, Tim Keller and J.I. Packer note that in the Bible, when bad things happen to good people, they complain with great freedom and at considerable length to their God. And Scripture does not seem to regard these complaining prayers as anything other than wisdom. Furthermore, Packer goes on to say that the Northern European influence culture has historically embraced the sort of stiff upper lip ideal of human behavior. And he traces that back and, and says this is more in keeping with the philosophy of Plato 
And Plato taught this idea that we are, we have a, there's a dualism to us, right? A mind-body dualism. We have a, a mind where our thoughts reside and we have a body where our, our feelings reside. And these are two separate things and the mind is to conquer the body and, and rule the feelings. And that sort of has taken over a little bit, in, as Packer says, in a Northern European-influenced culture. But this duality is not the biblical view. And in the biblical view, we're to offer both our thoughts and our feelings to God. And Packer concludes in his book saying, Complaints are integral to this new regenerate life of communion and prayer. So complaint will be, or at least should be, a recurring element in the praying of the born again. So I think it is consistent, just to summarize this little section, to both hope for justice and to look for the repentance of others. Because, you see, there is still justice done when a villain repents. It's just that they don't receive the judgment. Jesus took that judgment upon himself in his work on the cross. Okay, so the second thing that Nehemiah does when faced with opposition is he acted. Do we have that one, Izzy? He acted. So sometimes I really love how sort of to the point the Bible is. We read in the first six verses or so, or five verses of that chapter, where these people are attacking us and it's all not good. So we built the wall, right? There's no delaying, there's no mucking around. Nehemiah just builds the wall. And it says that the people had a mind to work. It's interesting to note that in the prayer, Nehemiah doesn't sort of stop and pray a reassessment prayer. Or should, should we go ahead now? What should we do now? How? He just goes ahead and acts. I'm going to come back to that idea in a little bit. I, I don't think that Nehemiah acts entirely without prayer. But I think at this moment, he knows that God wants him to act. And so he's going to go ahead and act. And there is some real wisdom in doing that. If you know that God has called you to do something, do it. Sometimes the longer we wait to do things, the harder it becomes. A few years ago, I, I did a bungee jump, right, in a moment of ill-advised rash behaviour, right? <laughs> um, and I went with four students of mine. So there was a group of five of us, we went out, and they determine your jumping order based on your weight, right, so they can use the right bungee cord. So I was due to go second, in, in our group. And um, the student who went first, she walked out on the thing and they go three, two, one, bungee. And honestly, almost before they said bungee, she'd done this big swan dive off this thing. And I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> that puts a little bit of pressure on, right? So I, I always said before that moment that heights didn't really bother me. Um, <laughs> But you shuffle out, and the platform, like i got little feet. The platform's about the size of your two feet, and you sort of are standing there, and then there's the river, and you're like, oh. Um, but the pressure was really on because she'd done it. So three, two, one, bungee, and so I, I just jumped. And it's still actually, I can almost feel my heart pounding now thinking about it again, right? But you just jumped. And, and after I did it, they bring you back up to the little platform and you sort of have to wait for everyone else in your group to jump and all that stuff. One thing that I observed was people who went out and just jumped straight away were fine. People who went out and sort of balked, the longer they balked, the worse it got, right? And they just wouldn't go. 
And I think we can sort of apply that, right? If God calls us to jump, jump. So a question, in what places in your life are you stalling or delaying when God has made it clear to you that you are to act in some way? Is there a neighbour or a family member or a friend that God's placed in your life that you might share the hope of Jesus with them, but you're always just sort of waiting for that perfect moment? Do you have a fractured relationship where, again, you're just waiting and waiting and waiting for that perfect moment? Do you have some persistent sin in your life that you're just not doing anything about because oh, I'll get to that later? There are lots of different possibilities here. And this is one of those areas where really I'm preaching to myself more maybe than I am to you. Um, I'm, I'm very good at analysis paralysis, right? That might be something you can associate with. We can sit and sit and sit and consider and let me research that a little bit longer. And sometimes we just need to act. Before we move on to our next point, I just want to add one quick qualification here. Nehemiah goes ahead and acts quickly in the face of opposition, not in the face of conflict. And I think that there is a difference there, right? A call to act when you're being opposed is different than a call to act when you have some conflict, right? This is not a disagreement where we need to apply some of the principles Brian taught us about last summer about conflict resolution, right? Because unfortunately in the church we can look and find lots of examples of strong-willed leaders charging ahead um, at times when they shouldn't have. Right, with that point, next point. The third thing that Nehemiah did, and this one's worded a little bit awkwardly, he stood with his workers and he looked towards God. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. That was the command that Nehemiah gave. So it turns out, as we read through that passage, the opposition of Sanballat and Tobiah wasn't the only difficulty that Nehemiah had to face. He quickly had to deal with some internal grumblings from the people that were building the wall. Um, the work here is really hard. In verse 10, there's a, a passage here that says, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And commentators tell us that that little passage there is written in poetic verse. So it, it likely was either a song or a chant that they sang as they built the wall, right? Really cheery song as you're singing the wall. Our strength is failing, it's too much, right? So Nehemiah now has external challenges, people outside who are opposing him, and he's got people inside the wall who are starting to grumble. Oh, I can't really do this, it's too hard. So this now becomes a real test of leadership for Nehemiah. And how does one lead in times of external opposition and internal discouragement? Again, we could spend a lot of time talking about Nehemiah's leadership style here. But let me highlight something that Nehemiah does here. Right throughout that whole passage in, in verses 15 through 23, we read that Nehemiah was present with his workers through that whole passage, right? If you look, you'll see lots of instances of the word we and lots of instances of the word us, right? There's a real communal uh, work going on there. There was a, a, years ago, there was a British TV show called Blackadder. I'm not sure that it probably made its way to America much, but oh, it did. Okay, so 
Blackadder was a show that sort of alternated between, between being hilariously funny and far too inappropriate to talk about in church. Um, but the final season of that show was set during the First World War. And the title character is, is Captain Blackadder, played by Rowan Atkinson of, of Mr. Bean, uh, Mr. Bean fame. And there's one, one moment in that final series where the general has come to talk to Captain Blackadder and his men, and he's telling them, you know, you're about to, to go and attack and, and get out of the trenches here. And, and he talks to one of Blackadder's soldiers, and the general says, don't worry, my boy. If you should falter, remember that I'm behind you. And Blackadder sarcastically quips, about 35 miles behind you. <laughs> and that's certainly not the case with Nehemiah here, right? Nehemiah is most definitely present with his people. And that's what Christian leadership should look like. Nehemiah is doing it tough alongside the workers. So he is making sure he's present with the workers. He's also making sure that the workers are present with each other. Half of the people are working on construction. Half of the people are holding the weapons and the armor. At the low points of the wall, there's whole clans and families that are situated together. In addition to this, Nehemiah is making sure that he points the people towards God. Although they are relying upon each other communally, it is the strength that's coming from God that is helping them through. As Nehemiah says, God is great and awesome. Nehemiah certainly leads well here, but he's recognizing that, in fact, it is God's power that sees them through and not their own. I'm going to skip that next passage I had there. Izzy, can we go to my fourth point? Can you go to the next? Yeah. So the fourth way that Nehemiah made it through here was he persevered because of his preparation. Facing opposition is hard, and it is non-stop, right? If we read in that passage, it says, Nehemiah and co., they didn't remove their clothes. In other words, they didn't hardly sleep. They always had a weapon at hand ready to defend themselves. We've read here about Sambala and Tobiah in chapter 4. We were introduced to them in chapter 2. They're going to come back again in chapter 6, right? This is a, a repetitive, ongoing thing. But in spite of this, Nehemiah was able to persevere, and I'm going to argue it was because of his preparation. So if we go back to our four pictures we had to start with here, up in the top left we have Nehemiah getting the information from his brother that the walls are in ruins. And then in the, in the bottom left we have him going and talking to the king. And if you remember back to the first week where Brian introduced the book to us, he told us, that the time difference between these two was four months. Nehemiah heard, mourned, fasted, prayed, wept for four months before he went to the king. When he came back, he went and he explored around by himself at night to find out the condition of things and what was going on. He laid a lot of groundwork here, right? So when I said earlier, he just acted... Yeah, he did just act, but he had done some groundwork first. And it's interesting to note that we don't, in this passage, when Nehemiah is acting, we don't read of any negative emotions on the part of Nehemiah. 
We don't read that he was discouraged or that he was saddened or that he was despaired. And absence of that in the text is not proof that he didn't feel those things. But if you read the rest of the book, you'll notice that he's not reluctant to talk about his emotions. In chapters 1 and 2, he's sad. In chapter 5, he's angry. In chapter 6, he's afraid. But here, he's just resolute in the face of opposition. And I propose the reason for this is twofold. Firstly, he had a great deal of faith in God. In verse 15, he says, God will frustrate their plan. In verse 20, he says, God will fight for us. And he had a great deal of faith that that was true. And the second thing was, he viewed the task that God had given him as more important than the opposition he was facing. He was more concerned about the condition of the walls of Jerusalem than he was the mockery of Sanballat and Tobiah. There's a song that I'm pretty sure we've sung it here. Maybe I just heard it on the radio. But it has the line in it, Break my heart for what breaks yours. And this isn't necessarily a strictly scriptural idea, but I think the idea being espoused by this song is that we should mourn things in the world that are not in keeping with the will of God. I think Nehemiah had embraced this ideal and his heart was broken over the condition of Jerusalem. And that outweighed any hurt that he would feel from his opponents. So even when faced with threats of violence, his confidence in God and the task God had given him didn't waver. He had his priorities right. And four months of prayer and mourning had prepared him for this time. It was no accident he was ready to face this opposition. I recently saw a short video reel um, of John Tyson, and he was sharing a quote of Haddon Robinson, so this is a quote of a quote. But I was able to find the original quote in, in Robinson's book, Jesus' Blueprint for Prayer. And Tyson prefaced this, this quote by saying, this illustrates what prayer does when a person is under pressure. Here's the quote. Where was it that Jesus sweat great drops of blood? Not in Pilate's Hall, nor on his way to Golgotha. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Had I been there and witnessed that struggle, I would have been worried about the future. If he's so broken up when all he is doing is praying, I might have said, what will he do when he faces a real crisis? Why can't he face this ordeal with the calm confidence of his three sleeping friends? Yet when the test came... Jesus walked to the cross with courage and his three friends fell apart and fell away. And Tyson notes that we need to bring our prayers to the Lord before the crisis and ask for courage to face the crisis. So a couple of questions for you as we wrap up this morning. Is there something in your life that God has set before you that you're stalling on because you're worried about potential opposition or negative outcomes? Now, I can't tell you to press on because there won't be any opposition because there most likely will be. And there's probably going to be some disdain for you in the work that you're doing. But the question is, what is more important? Being obedient and following the call of God or avoiding opposition and living a little bit more comfortably? Are you this morning more worried about some brokenness in the world or the ease of life that you're living? I don't know where you're at, Maybe you're at the point where you just need to act. Maybe you're at the point where you need to spend some time praying and mourning 
and seeking to align your ways more closely with what God wills, to have your heart broken for things that grieve God. Whatever it is, remember that God is with us and that he is great and awesome. Let's just close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your great faithfulness to us in times of struggle, in times of opposition. We thank you that you're always with us. We thank you that you fight for us and that you're on our side. Lord, may we always turn to you in those times when we are opposed. Lord, bless our time this morning and bless us in the week ahead, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.